Welcome to the Richard Roper Podcast. I'm Richard Roper right here in beautiful downtown Chicago, Illinois. Thanks to everyone for once again joining me. we got lots going on in the world of entertainment. More complaints about Disney going woke. I've got some reviews of highly anticipated series and feature films and some other entertainment news as well. Lots to talk about on the podcast. But first, here's your reminder. The Richard Roper Show is brought to you by AmericanEagle.com Studios. The digital landscape is changing rapidly. And to compete in today's online business environment, you need an experienced partner. Since 1995, AmericanEagle.com has partnered with companies of all sizes, offering web design, web development, e-commerce, mobile apps, and digital marketing to drive your overall business's success because they believe that today's online world is your online opportunity. Go to AmericanEagle.com and you can get started today. Today, I tell you. Tomorrow's fine too, but why not today? Well, I got you here. AmericanEagle.com. Thanks so much, as always, for your sponsorship. Here's the first thing I want to talk about. We've got some uh, new, new-ish controversies regarding Disney remakes. Uh, let's start with Peter Pan and Wendy. Uh, and by the time you're listening to this podcast, this will be available for streaming on Disney+. Plus. Uh, they went the streaming route on this one. It's a beautiful film, and I'm going to talk about the, the film and the quality of the actual film a little bit later in today's podcast. But I also understand the decision to go with streaming. We're getting into the summer movie season. In the next week or so, we're going to get some big summer movies hitting the theaters, including Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Uh, for the horror fans, you've already got Evil Dead Rise out there. So I think Disney was thinking, and Disney themselves, of course, they've got The Little Mermaid coming up at, uh, in just a couple of weeks at the end of the month in May. So this is a, definitely a family-friendly film. I could see the decision to go with the streaming release. This is an LA Times article. This uh, actually started when the trailer came out, and now we're getting closer to the release, and some people, including myself, have actually seen the film in advance. And... Um, some people are saying, as they always say, Twitter users, of course, we love to go on Twitter to get the, to take somewhat of the pulse, the pulse of some of the nation. And Twitter users, according to the LA Times, uh, immediately taking issue with how Jude Law, terrific actor, was styled as Captain Hook. They're lamenting that this might come as a surprise to some of you, but Captain Hook is uh, supposed to be really hot and handsome, according to the original J.M. Barry works, the play and the book from literally 120 some years ago. I think you've seen various depictions through the years, including, you know, uh, Dustin Hoffman and Hook. They've gone in a different direction. I didn't know he was supposed to be hot. Uh, and the, the, the truth is, yeah, he does not look. Jude Law, who's a very handsome man, of course, does not look hot in the movie. He's got a prosthetic nose and stringy hair, and he's, he's supposed to be as ugly on the outside, I guess, as he is on the inside. So some people are complaining. Uh, one tweeter said the audacity of casting Jude Law as Captain Hook and then making him look like that is a criminal offense. Someone else said I thought it was impossible to uglify Jew Law and illegal to make an unhot Captain Hook, but Disney has proved me wrong yet again. Uh, other people are complaining uh, because of the diversity of the casting. We've got um, Tinkerbell is played by Yara Shahidi, uh, who is black. Uh, we have uh, the Lost Boys. Believe it or not, they even have some lost girls with the Lost Boys now, and they address it in the film. Listen, this is what's going to happen, folks, with these Disney live-action remakes. We've seen it time and again where 
when they do the live action remakes, it's a more inclusive story because guess what? They want to appeal to as wide of an audience as possible. This is the same thing that came up, which is still ongoing. There are still people out there in their backyards with assault uh, rifles, uh, apparently buying and then shooting at, and in some cases hitting, in some cases, they're, they're, they're murdering cases of Bud Light. And then they turn to us and say, you know, woke you and all these other things. The the thinking behind Disney doing this, folks, whatever you want to call it, signal virtuing. I don't know what signal virtuing, signal vir- virtuing, virtue signaling, vir- virtue signaling. See, I thought it was signal virtuing, which would be if you're really polite and you let somebody else come into the, the uh, into your lane in the highway, but uh, virtue signaling, I've I've yet to hear a, a really smart explanation for what that means. It's some way of saying to people, hey, we're woke. And I certainly don't think most of the people who complain about woke can tell you what woke mean. Woke to me still means a good thing, aware and alert and, you know, woke. But, you know, with Bud Light, they're trying to reach as wide an audience as possible, as are all of the other hundreds upon hundreds of uh, brands out there that target different demographics with their ads. Uh, and the same thing with the movies, you know, they're, Disney and all the other studios are recognizing that a generation ago, and in some cases, not even a generation, only half a generation ago, uh, the vast majority of characters, uh, majority of characters on small and big screen were white, usually middle class to upper class to wealthy. And we're now seeing so many more TV shows and movies reflecting what the world, the country our society looks like, and some people are really offended by that, which to me is kind of hilarious and also a little bit frightening. One of the things that happens too is when people get all upset about characters in The Little Mermaid or in the the new Peter Pan movie not looking like the characters from the animated film of their youth, they're like, this this was ruining my childhood memories. You're stepping on the path. You can't revise history and i'm like how delicate are your childhood memories of sitting in the family room and and watching whatever it is beauty and the beast or little mermaid or any of those other great disney animated films of the late 80s early 90s or maybe you're talking about the peter pan from 1953 how delicate and and sensitive are you what a, what a snowflake you are if those memories are going to get trampled on because there's a new addition out there guess what the Disney live action remakes don't actually have the magical power to suddenly make the original works disappear. There are dozens upon dozens of adaptations of the Peter Pan story, whether it's uh, there have been so many different staged works, musicals, TV adaptations, offshoots, prequels, spinoffs, you name it. And guess what? A lot of that stuff is actually available. If you want to watch the 1953 Peter Pan, you want to tell your kids this is the greatest Peter Pan of all time, or if you just want to watch it yourself, I don't give a shit. I think it's you know it's a few bucks on on Prime Video, and there you go, you can watch it. You don't have to watch this one; it doesn't replace the films of the past. It's simply a new version of it. So I, you know, people get so worked up about this, and I'm like, they're not taking away uh, your 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 glorious magical childhood memories. Also, when people are complaining about whether or not there should be lost girls with the lost boys, listen, uh, J.M. Barry actually had kind of a feminist explanation for it. In the original Peter Pan story, the telling was, and this has, again, been reshaped a million different times, but the origin story, if you will, for the lost boys was they were like kids who had fallen out of their cribs, basically, I think, and, and, and got into trouble or something like that. 
And the way J.M. Barry wrote it was that little girls were too smart to do that. So they never became lost girls. So now we've got lost boys. We got lost girls. Uh, we got uh, a Tinkerbell, who, by the way, is a fairy. So I don't know if you can get you know too worked up about the fact that you know your cartoon Tinkerbell, I guess it was blonde, and now there's a, a black Tinkerbell because we're talking about fairies. There's no scientific actual photojournalism out there documenting what fairies look like. I mean, come on, we all know they're real. We just haven't seen them yet, right? So, uh, you know, this is what people are getting worked up about. Um, <laughs> and then, of course, there's been a lot of talk about the Little Mermaid and the fact that uh, Halle Bailey is going to be uh, is going to be the title character, and you know, she's a black actress. And some people are taking offense to that, which, again, we're talking about a freaking mermaid. I will say this, and this is kind of to me, this is there's a difference between people. I don't know, you know, either revealing their bigotry or just getting worked up over the smallest thing. And this now just recently, uh, they've they've started releasing uh, photos of uh sebastian and flounder and these characters from the little mermaid and they look very realistic even though it's animation combined with live action and practical effects and all of that and it is a little odd because this you know the sebastian and flounder of of the little mermaid from what was it 1989 you know they were very cartoony and cuddly and they look like stuffed animals and it's a little strange sometimes i will i will grant you this although i, I always say you know let's let's wait till the movie comes out but there have been some past reworkings of Disney films, including The Lion King. And I actually kind of enjoyed the live action. I mean, the, it wasn't as great as the animated version. But it's a little strange when they have photorealistic animals who then speak the king's English and their mouths move. And I do re I do remember when, when they first released uh, the photos of the lions from The Lion King, from the animated, if you will, not, I'm sorry, the live action combination with animation and CGI, the most recent version. And they would say, you know, Beyonce is this character and the various actors. And, and someone just tweeted, those are literally just pictures of lions. And they were, they all looked exactly the same. You know? So now with The Little Mermaid, people are saying, you know, this hyper-realistic crab and flatfish talking, it, it, it has this kind of strange, uncanny valley effect. And I, I do understand what people are saying. It's a little strange sometimes when the animation is too realistic. You know, if you go back 20 years to Finding Nemo, and Pixar films like that, even though the animation had, had become, you know, super crisp and clean and detailed and breathtakingly stunning, uh, they were still cartoon fish. I know the animators will get mad at me for saying that. I say that in the most admirable way. But when they really kind of look like the actual, you know, the flounder or crab or flatfish, whatever the case may be, it's almost a little unsettling. I, I, I get that. So we'll see what happens when The Little Mermaid comes out in a little bit. I still maintain, folks, just relax and enjoy the films. I'll have a, a review of Peter Pan and Wendy for you uh, in the second segment of today's podcast. Uh, I want to talk about a couple of other little things happening in the world of entertainment. And this is kind of in the same vein, talking about uh, remakes and reboots and touching up stuff. You might recall a few weeks ago on the podcast, we talked about how certain works of Roald Dahl were being uh, rewritten, you know, by the publisher to erase certain offensive stereotypes. We saw the Dr. Seuss's estate actually pulled, I think, four or five books from the shelves because of, you know, old, outdated and bigoted stereotypes depicted in the stories. 
Um, this was not nearly as egregious. But as you'll recall, we talked about how Steven Spielberg edited the guns out of the theatrical, the movie's 20th anniversary re-release. Movie came out in 1982 and then in 2002 when there was the director's cut where, you know, there had been improvements made in special effects and some touch-ups you could do to the visuals and things like that, restore the print. Steven Spielberg, uh, the federal agents who were chasing young Elliot, played by Henry Thomas, in the original film had guns. You know, they were trying to apprehend, they weren't, you know, they weren't trying to shoot Elliot, but they they thought the alien, you know, they had to bring down the alien one way or another. And it, it added, you know, legitimate dramatic peril to the situation. And then uh, Spielberg replaced them, uh, the guns, with walkie-talkies. And in a recent uh, appearance at the Time 100 Summit at uh, New York's Lincoln Center, he addressed this. And let's take a listen to what Steven Spielberg had to say about replacing the guns with walkie-talkies. I know at one point you took some guns out of E.T. and then regretted it. That was a mistake. That was a mistake. Um, I never should have done that because E.T., is a product of its era. No film should be revised based on the lenses we now are either voluntarily or being forced to peer through. E.T. was a film that I was sensitive to the fact that the federal agents were approaching a bunch of kids with their firearms exposed, and I thought I would change the guns into walkie-talkies. And that was because years had gone by, and I, and I, I had changed my, my own views. I should never have messed with the archive of my own work, and I don't recommend anybody really do that. Your, your film, all our movies are a kind of um, measuring, sort of a signpost of where we were when we made them and what, what the world was like, what the world was receiving when we got those stories out there. So I really regret having done You feel that. that way about, this is such a current topic across literature and, and art in general, taking certain language out of Charlie and the Chocolate Factory. Is this a, a feeling you have across across the world of art that we shouldn't apply today's standards to yesterday's work? Nobody should ever attempt to take the chocolate out of Willy Wonka, <laughs> ever. You know, and they shouldn't take the chocolate or the vanilla or any other flavor out of anything that has been written. For me, it, it is sacrosanct. It's, it's something that is our history. It's our cultural, it's our cultural heritage. So there you go. Spielberg's going to leave his films alone. I, I, I'm a pretty big fan of just letting the work stand for itself. We've talked about how, for example, uh, when certain channels now show Gone with the Wind, they'll have a discussion before or after the film, putting things in context and talking about different things in the film that might be offensive. You know, it goes back, you can go back thousands of years, but even if you go back to, you know, Mark Twain and certain names of characters and situations, it's, it was reflective of the times. And you see that even in a lot of movies. People talk about how a lot of the comedies and, and dramas, action movies, you name the genres, uh, from the 80s and 90s uh, wouldn't be made today. Well, first of all, they are all being made. They're being remade. And yeah, sometimes they take out certain offensive characters or, or stereotypes. But, you know, if you watch a movie from 1985 and there's some casual racism, we're not condoning it, but we're saying that at that period in time in American history, even some heroes might say some things that they definitely wouldn't say now, but I don't think we should take that out. I think people should see that and go, okay, you know what? We've grown. We've all grown. We've got a long way to go, but we have become more enlightened. Uh, and then this is a story that caught my eye, guys. Maybe you saw this. There's a country singer by the name of Morgan Wallen. And listen, I know he's popular, but I'm I'm not going to pretend I know the, the, the fine catalog of Morgan Wallen. But Morgan Wallen was supposed to perform 
at the Vaught-Hemingway Stadium in Oxford, Mississippi. Uh, he canceled this performance just minutes before the show. Uh, he, his voice was shot. It happens. I, you know, it happens to almost everybody who's ever, you know, gone on stage and 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 performed for the masses. Sometimes you go to a Broadway show and the lead in a in a musical isn't going to be able to make it because the pipes are are gone for a while. So uh, this guy canceled his show. Now, of course, when that happens, you're going to get a refund on your tickets. But a fan. One of the show's attendees actually sued him for breach of contract and negligence in a class action lawsuit, which means you'd bring everybody else in on that. It was at the concert. Uh, They're claiming that, oh, yeah, fine, you know, we're going to get a refund. But what about out-of-pocket expenses incurred in connection with the canceled performance? For example, transportation, lodging, food, merchandise sales, transaction fees, and other such expenses. And I will say this about that. Too fucking bad. The guy, I don't know anything about this country singer, but I guarantee you he felt bad about having to, to cancel or postpone the concert. If you bought, First of all, if you bought food, uh, you ate the food, so I don't know why you get reimbursed for that. Same thing with merchandise sales, you know, unless it's going to, you know, again, ruin your memories of being at a concert that didn't occur. Uh, the transaction fees, the taxes and all that stuff. Listen, he's got nothing, he, he's got no sway over that. We've seen all the cases and people complaining about how there are so many additional charges put on concert tickets but you know that's a lawsuit for another day and listen if you drove to the concert and you parked at the concert uh maybe you got a hotel because you lived two hours from the concert it definitely sucks but again he canceled because he lost his voice right he wasn't able to perform now i would say and this has been this has happened in the past and actually happened a lot more with rock acts in the 60s and 70s than in modern time. There were all sorts of cases, whether it was uh, Sly and the Family Stone, who was famous for canceling Jim Morrison and The Doors, other acts where they'd either show up four hours late and do a truncated show or just not show. I think if if, if there's a concert and it, it it's later learned or that night learned that the, the performer didn't show up because they got too drunk, or too high, or some other selfish, you know, reason, uh, and just or just didn't show up, or you know, if they played two songs and then decided they didn't want to play anymore, I think you might have some sort of class action suit then, because you bought the tickets in good faith and the, the performer did not come through in good faith. I would say that that would be an interesting class action lawsuit. Uh, somebody not being able to take the stage because they couldn't perform, you're not you're not going to win. I guess they've withdrawn the suit; they're going to refile it. You're not going to win that lawsuit. It, like I said, listen, it sucks, man. You know, if you go to a if you go to a a baseball game and it gets rained out early, then there's a you know the game gets rescheduled. But it usually gets rescheduled for the next day as part of a doubleheader because the team that is in town might not be able to travel back to town later in the season, whatever the case may be. And a lot of teams now will say, listen, if you can't go to that game, we'll get you tickets to another game. But the same thing if you got the whole family together. And you took the day off from school and work and, you know, had this whole get together and you had tailgating and everything. And then the game gets rained out or the star pitcher can't go because he pulled a hammy. That's just them's the breaks. You also might see a game where your team loses 14 to one. You know, that's just, you know, you, you buy your ticket, you take your chances. So I think, you know, in cases where there's legitimate, deliberate negligence on the part of the performer. You might have a case, but in something like this, you better drop it. But what you shouldn't drop, he says, as he segues into a quick commercial break, what you shouldn't drop is your opportunity to get some Portillos. Let's take a listen.
All right, let's talk a little bit about Portillo's. They're known, of course, for their famous Chicago hot dogs with all the freshest and tastiest ingredients, right down to that famous poppy seed bun. Then we have to talk about the legendary chocolate cake. And everybody knows if you've ever been to Portillo's, but if you don't, you never put the cake in the fridge. You have to have it at room temperature. That's how it's delivered to you or handed to you in the restaurant. That's the way you have to taste it. And, of course, the menu has everything from the char-broiled burger to Italian beef to some really good chopped salads. But, oh, that chocolate cake, I'm telling you. Now, there are locations throughout the Midwest and in Florida, California, and Arizona. But you can also ship Portillo's anywhere in the United States of America by ordering at portillos.com. That's P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. P-O-R-T-I-L-L-O-S.com. All right, I want to talk uh, a little bit about Peter Pan and Wendy. We have talked about the, some of the controversies around it. I want to talk about the film itself. Guys, I thought this was actually really, really well done. Uh, the director and co-writer of this version, it's called Peter Pan and Wendy, is David Lowry. He did a film called A Ghost Story with Casey Affleck about five, six years ago. Really, really interesting stuff. Did The Old Man and the Gun, Robert Redford film. And then did The Green Knight, which is a film that a lot of people just absolutely love. So we're talking about a really, to me, an A-list director who's got a really good visual style. And he brings that to Peter Pan and Wendy. Uh, in fact, they, I know they filmed some location shots, the Faroe Islands, which I believe are off in Norway. A lot of it in uh, Vancouver and other parts of British Columbia. And then, of course, you're going to have a lot of soundstage and CGI stuff. But. The Neverland of Peter Pan and Wendy is maybe the most gorgeous and visually stunning uh, Neverland I've ever seen. As is often the case with this story, it's really Wendy's story. Wendy Darling uh, is just about at that age where she's not a kid anymore. She's played by Ever Gabo Anderson. And then along comes uh, Alexander Milani's Peter Pan and Yara Shahidi, we mentioned as Tinkerbell. And they whisk her and her little brothers away to Neverland. And, you know, it's kind of interesting, and I'm sure some people will find this off-putting as well, because when when the characters fly in this movie, they fly like Marvel superheroes. You know, they there ain't no gliding uh, over the over the streets of London. They're soaring, man. You know, they're flying. They end up in, of course, in Neverland. And uh, that's when we see Jude Law and his, his marauding band of pirates, and Jim Gaffigan plays his uh, trusty loyal comic relief sidekick and then we get the usual peter pan versus captain hook story and wendy uh realizing what it means to grow up and have responsibility because she's almost a mother figure to the lost boys and lost girls one of the things i like about this film was that they give us a captain hook origin story and we have had that before there was a novel that came out about six or seven years ago that was sort of the uh the book equivalent, the novel equivalent of Wicked in that it told the, the entire story uh, from the point of view, uh, opposite point of view. So it told the story of Captain Hook and really kind of really dark, interesting stuff. And we've had other, you know, hints and glimpses into the the past. Uh, you know, there's also always been something, too, when you think about it, kind of melancholy and Twilight Zone-esque. Uh, about the whole dynamic between Peter Pan and Captain Hook, because Peter Pan is he he lives on Neverland with the lost boys and lost girls, and they never grow up, and he loves that. But he's also kind of petulant and selfish about that, and doesn't want anybody to grow up. 
And the two of them need each other. They constant, they're, they're in a constant battle. I mean, that's what they do. They battle. Peter Pan wins. Captain Hook loses. And then he regroups and they do it all over again. And then sometimes they, you know, they bring Wendy and the, and the boys and other people into the adventure. So there's this sort of existential crisis. Like, how long is this going to go on? And especially when we find out in this particular version of the story what uh, the background is between those two characters. So there's an air of melancholy and sadness to it, but there's also a lot of warm, uplifting moments. Visually, as I mentioned, it's just gorgeous. So Peter Pan and Wendy, I think, is a, a fine Admiral addition to the to the Peter Pan canon. Also just arriving, this one is in theaters. It's been out for just a few days now. This is another uh, beloved book, uh, in a different way, but certainly a generational landmark book. Are you there, God? It's me, Margaret. Judy Bloom uh, published that novel in 1970, believe it or not, uh, more than 50 years ago. And it's become one of the best selling and most important young adult novels of all time. Uh, it's all about Margaret, who's growing up. She's 11 years old, and it's all told from her point of view. And for its time, it was very groundbreaking and bold and original and fresh because Margaret worried about the things that girls who are about to turn 12 worry about to this day, peer pressure. And when am I going to be able to buy a bra? And when is my period coming? And does the cute boy in school notice me? And why do my parents not understand me? And I will say this, they did a beautiful job in the cinematic adaptation. They wisely kept the story in 1970. And it's got all the great cars and fashions and clothes and everything. But it's really just about the friendship of, of these girls. And the cast is is remarkable in this. We start with, uh, you know, there's some familiar names. Uh, Kathy Bates uh, plays the grandmother. And it's one of those kind of scene-stealing, supporting performances. Uh, Rachel McAdams is amazing as the mom. Uh, she's the mom everybody in the world always wants to have. Uh, and then there's the, a young cast, including Abby Ryder Fortson, who plays 11-year-old Margaret. She's only a couple years older than that. And we've talked about this in the past. You know, I, I get for some, you know, you know, intense, sexually charged, uh, drug-fueled TV series, you'll get 26-year-olds playing 15 and 16-year-olds, for example, in Euphoria. And I completely understand that. But for a story like this, all, all the young actors who are playing 11 and 12-year-olds are essentially that age, a year or two older. But they all look and sound and capture that wonderful, crazy, mixed-up period of adolescence where you're... You've got one foot in childhood and one foot in adolescence and then, you know, puberty and, and your teenage years. And it it really captures that. It captures, you know, what it's like to be in sixth grade, basically. Beautiful film. Really one of the best films of the year. Are you there? God, it's me, Margaret. It took 50 years. Judy Bloom had has had other uh, works of hers adapted. And there's some new versions coming out of some of her books, uh, including a limited series based on Forever, I know. Uh, but never, never a version of Are You There, God? It's me, Margaret. And it was worth the wait. Really was, guys. So really terrific. I want to mention one more. I had so many more, but, you know, we only have so much time in the podcast uh, because I only have so much time. I got to go back to watching things and writing things. I did want to mention something you should probably skip. It's Love and Death on HBO Max. Now, we talked last year about Candy. It was the Hulu limited series that told the story of the Texas housewife, Candy Montgomery, who in 1980 uh, whacked her friend, Betty Gore, with an axe and killed her, whacked her with an axe 40 times. And then there was a subsequent murder trial. She uh, claimed self-defense and spoiler alert, since this was 40 years ago, she was actually found not guilty. 
So that was the that was the the Hulu miniseries just came out last year. Jessica Biel as Candy Montgomery, Melanie Linsky as her friend Betty Gore, Timothy Simons played Candy's husband Pat, and Pablo Schreider was Betty's husband's Alan. Now we get Love and Death on HBO Max, the exact same story, fictionalized once again with Elizabeth Olsen as Candy and Lily Rabe as Betty. Uh, Jesse Plemons plays Alan and Patrick Fugit plays Pat. There's your two fine quartets of actors. It's the same story. Uh, I will say I, I liked Candy a little bit more because it has fewer episodes. Love and Death, I thought, just kind of spread it out a little bit too much. It's seven episodes. Uh, Candy was five episodes. And also, quite frankly, we just got this story. So, you know, sometimes you just get the points for being there first. If you've, I, I don't think you need to spend your time delving into both. But if you do want to, you know, one is three stars, one's two and a half stars, quite frankly. There's not that much of a difference. But I would say if you do want to see a limited series about this infamous case, go with Candy, the Hulu limited series, over the brand new HBO Max limited series, Love and Death. Those are my recommendations for you, folks. Tons of new releases coming out the next time we talk, including Guardians of the Galaxy Volume 3. Speaking of reboots and remakes, Paramount Plus is giving us a 2023 set, basically modern day set, limited series, adaptation of Fatal Attraction, the huge and controversial film from 1987. We'll talk about whether or not that worked and so much more. That's going to do it for the Richard Roper Podcast. Thanks, as always, to everybody. We'll talk soon.